I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Today on the show, Leslie Kane and Mike Anthony. I was sitting in England with Leslie and this man, Stuart Alexander, and I saw the thing happen right in front of my eyes that Leslie talks about in the book. It's real, right? There are some things that just simply are objectively true, are objectively real. And when I saw this thing happen, that blew me away. And I, from then on, started to believe that my dad really was here. But when I saw this thing happen, it moved me from believing it was real to knowing it was real. I, I can't describe how big of a shift that was in my life. This is Somewhere in the Skies with Ryan Sprague. Welcome to Somewhere in the Skies. I'm your host, Ryan Sprague. And guess what? You're going to die. We all are. It's the singular thing that every last one of us has in common. And the sooner we accept that, the sooner we can start asking the tougher questions. What happens when we die? Where do we go? Do we go anywhere? Our body ceases to function. But what about the unknown force within us? Our consciousness? Or, on a religious level, our soul. Are they different or one and the same? Our brains shut down. But what about everything we've ever learned or experienced? Do our memories just blip out into blankness like nothing ever happened? When we think of death, many of us brush it aside and save it for another day. And then those days turn into months, and those months turn into years. And then we're faced with that inevitable question, ourselves, of our own mortality. No matter your beliefs, no matter your shying away from it or accepting it, death is a mystery we've only begun to scratch the surface of. And today's guests have dug deeper into this mortal mystery like nobody else. Returning this week is investigative journalist and New York Times bestselling author, Leslie Kane. Her most recent book, Surviving Death, A Journalist Investigates Evidence for an Afterlife, tackles the very questions I just asked, and so much more. Mike Anthony is an actor in New York City. Several years ago, his father died unexpectedly. Then, something extraordinary occurred. Something Mike didn't believe was possible. And ever since, he's been on a personal journey to find out if his father ended with his body, or continues on in ways we once thought impossible, but are now beginning to understand in the most profound of ways. Here's our conversation with Leslie Kane and Mike Anthony. 
I am here with Mike. Mike, Hi. let's talk about how you and I first connected before the three of us connected. Um, yeah. We have a pretty long history. Yeah. I mean, first of all, I want to say that I, it's humbling for me. I feel sort of out of place being here with uh, these two great researchers. I, you know, I'm just a dum-dum bartender. <laughs> oh, stop. And I'm here with you guys who have, you know... Look, he's a bartender, too. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. But who has devoted years of study and, and you know, Leslie's, a, you know, a world-class journalist. And so I feel a little bit out of place. But yeah, you and I know each other because uh, we work in the theater world. Mm-hmm. And uh, way back when, I guess at, at this point, it's like... 10 years ago or something? Yeah, before there was Hamilton, there was a little show called In the Heights. That's right. Lin-Manuel's first show, and I remember that's when I met you. That's right. I was doing, I was selling t-shirts, and I looked over, and you were there every day. That's right. And you put a smile on everyone's faces, no matter how hard our New York Uh, gritty days were. Um, And then one day, I overheard you talking to somebody about UFO stuff, you know, quote-unquote UFO stuff, Mm -hmm. and and my ears pricked up like like a dog, and I was like, that guy just say UFO? Because, you know, there aren't a lot of people in my life that I share this interest with, you know, though I've been interested in it since I was like a young kid, but mm-hmm. most of the kids I grew up with thought I was actually insane for believing <laughs> that something was going on that we couldn't explain. Right. Uh, so when I heard you talking about it that day at the theater, I, that's how we sort of really started to become friends, was, right. uh, talking about this topic. Absolutely. And then I learned that you were, you were sort of going into a world that I'd never explored. And that had to do with, uh, I guess some could say supernatural, paranormal even, but um, more specifically, the afterlife. Yeah. Something I never touched. Mm. Now, is it a fear? Uh, it could be. I know a lot of people, death is one of the scariest things they could possibly think of, and they choose not to think about it. Yeah. Um, and... I had just learned that Leslie had written a book all about what you were about to talk about right, and research right. um, after after her first book about UFOs. So, Leslie, how did how did you go from UFOs to this? I have to ask, how did this all come about for you? Uh, well, it wasn't really related to UFOs, except that it sort of is because it's a big mystery. So all during the years when I was investigating UFOs, I sort of had this in the background, this question of, of what happens when you die, or is there any kind of survival past death? That's the question. Right. Um, and can it be looked at from a scientific perspective, not just a matter of religion or belief systems, or even not just a matter of personal experiences, but really a matter of scientific study and investigations and stuff like that. So I'd always been interested in that question, and so after my UFO book came out, um, it was, then there was a couple of years where I was dealing with stuff related to the book. And then it was all of a sudden like, what next? And I, my publisher actually invited me to write another book. And this was like the perfect topic. It was something I really wanted to do. Um, I, I just the obvious topic for me to, to, to do my next book on. And I'd really spent so long on UFOs that I was kind of ready to move on to something else anyway. Yeah, welcome to my life. Another simple question. <laughs> From UFOs to uh, life after death. Yeah, he likes to yeah. focus on the simple things. Yeah, I like the big mysteries. Yeah. You know, and I'm just, it's my journalistic mind, my probing curiosity kind of gets hooked by these things. Mm-hmm. And they're usually things that we don't have answers for, but that makes them in some ways even more interesting. Right. So, yeah. And I've done a little research on this over the years. I've looked into it a, 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 a case of a, a child who remembered a past life because I was involved with some people who were making a movie about it. So I kind of got introduced to a bunch of people involved in the field and stuff. So I sort of, you know, had some 
some awareness of it, but not a lot. I had no idea what was going to happen when I started the, the research mm-hmm. that I did. It turned out I had a, a whole lot of personal stuff happen to me that I never expected to happen. So it became a journey, a personal journey for me. Mm-hmm. The first book was about research. I had never seen a UFO, so it was definitely not about experience. But with this kind of material, you can choose to enter into it on an experiential level. You don't have to wait for the UFO to show up. You could, There's various things you can do, to, and we can talk about that, to explore the material yourself. And when you do that, you become a participant in a certain sense, out of yeah. choice. And that's one of the different aspects of this. That's so, fascinating. Yeah. I would love to dig into that. Sure. Becoming a part of of what you're doing. Um, I think that's a big part of all this. And you're right. I think when it comes to the UFO topic, it's dropped in the lap of an observer without any, you know, for a lot of witnesses, UFO witnesses, no preconceived notions, no interest in the topic of UFOs. Definitely. It's not a choice. It's, it's not a choice. And there's some wish it never had happened. Exactly. Oh, a lot of them. I'm sure. Right. Yeah. Um, but for something like this, I... I, I think it's interesting. It's such a deeper look into something, a different phenomenon, or possibly an interconnected phenomenon. We'll get to that, um, where you can choose to be a participant. Yeah, you um, can test certain things. And then also with me, things happen to me that I, that I didn't really choose, that I never expected to happen. But that, you know, that, that too, things yeah. happen. Yeah. Well, so. talking about personal journeys, Mike, how, how did you get interested in the topic of the afterlife and um, get connected with Leslie? Yeah, well, I've always had an interest in these questions, you know, these sort of bigger picture questions, you know, starting from when I was a young kid and I'd never seen a UFO, but I was interested in, in, in that. Um, it was something that, because uh, I was scientifically minded from a young age, I was going to be a high school science teacher before I became an actor. That's where I was headed. So, you know, I was a bi- biology major for a couple of weeks in, in college. So I know what I'm talking about, right? <laughs> um, so uh, what happened, though, was my dad passed away. And this is about nine years ago now. And my sister had hired a medium uh, to come to our house and do a reading. And a medium is a person who claims the ability to somehow sense people who are no longer in a physical body. Uh, and I had known vaguely about mediumship from the show Crossing Over uh, with John mm-hmm. Ed. Edwards? Edwards. John Edward. Yep, I uh, remember that show. Uh, and that was my only real, uh, other than the, sh- the movie Ghost, with, you know, Whoopi Goldberg. Ghost and John Edward, those were, that was my exposure to mediumship, but until... One extreme to the other. Yes, yeah. yes, exactly. Um, and I found that show uh, interesting, but, you know, it was on television, so I, I assumed it was highly edited, and, and uh, the reactions seemed real from the... From the the sitters in the audience, but I, who knew how he was getting that information? Mm-hmm. You know, were producers in his ear giving him, you know, I had no idea. So when this woman came to our house, uh, I decided I was going to test her by coming up with a sort of a secret code that I wanted my dad to get this woman to say if it was the real deal. And uh, the, the reading lasted for about two hours and the whole thing was extraordinary. She was coming up with uh, details that, you know, the s- levels of specificity that I did not think could be possible that, uh, you know, I, at one point I was looking around the room to see if there were like photographs or something up on the wall that she was getting information from. Cause it, there were some really highly specific things. Um, and, and everyone was in tears and I had totally forgotten by the end of it that I'd come up with this code word with my dad. Cause I was already convinced that something was going on that I, I could not personally explain at that time. And then, uh, as we were wrapping up to leave, uh, she looked at me and said exactly the thing that I had asked my dad to have her say. 
Wow. And I gasped because I hadn't said it to anyone else on the face of planet Earth, not even my mom and sister who were there with me. Nobody knew this. And so right then, in that moment, it was it was one of those paradigm-shifting moments where uh, it felt to me right then that what my science teachers had told me was not the complete story, that we don't have this thing figured out yet. So I couldn't let it go. My, my mind couldn't let it go. But I'm skeptical by nature. And, you know, there's something called, uh, uh, you know, re- retrocognitive dissonance, right? Where something doesn't necessarily comport with your sense of how the world is supposed to be working. Um, the brain is really good at dismissing things and, and sort of retroactively uh, figuring out ways that it, you might have uh, misperceived something. So then I start thinking, well, could, could there be any way she, she had my sister's phone number. Maybe she hired a private detective and they were out like listening to me when I was all alone at my dad's house. And I said this thing to my dad, maybe they had some really sensitive audio equipment, you know, which I know is insane. And I, but it's a possibility and I needed to rule that out. So I called this woman back. Her name is Angelina Diana. Uh, it was about a year later. And I said, you know, you're, you're not going to remember me, but I had this reading with you and it was life changing, but I'd like to, uh, see you do that again with people that I bring to you so that I will know there's no way you could be cheating, Mm -hmm. um, in any kind of a normal way. And she immediately said, yes, sure. I'll do that. Which is a big risk for her, right? Because right. she took, she gave me no instructions. There were no no rules about this whole thing. Uh, she signed the release form right away, you know. Because I said, I'm going to bring people to you. I'm going to film it. I want to make a documentary about it. And whether or not a person is legitimately doing something that science currently says is not possible, it doesn't matter. It, it, a, an editor can make you look great or or terrible, uh, you know, depending on how they splice things together. So, so she was taking a risk. By giving this stranger at that time the uh, the the right to to put this story together, however I saw fit. <laughs> so anyway, I started bringing people to her, random people, and I watched her time and again come up with information, specific information, often that I couldn't understand. Uh, you know where it was coming from or how <laughs> she was doing it. So so that started me down this path of 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 seeing. Wait a minute. First of all, there are ways you can test this. And, uh, and then I started reading, reading books about it and, uh, came to discover that there has been so much research done into this. And I had no idea that places like Stanford and Duke and Harvard, um, have in Princeton have studied the quote unquote paranormal for years, for years, but sometimes getting what we would call positive results that something unexplained was going on. Uh, you know, studies like at, at Princeton, I think it was the ESP study at Princeton. Um, I recently read, uh, Annie Jacobson, mm-hmm. right? her, uh, phenomenon, phenomenon, which is about the Stargate program and the CIA's involvement right. and the millions of dollars they spent studying re- remote viewing. Leslie and I were just talking about this the other day. There's, there's one case there that this case alone, this, uh, instance alone is mind boggling. Uh, it was Uri Geller, who I know there's controversy about. There's a, it's been, I believe now this has been released. I, th- I think Annie wrote about this in, Annie Jacobson wrote about it in her book, I believe, is where I first saw this. Uh, at one point they had a picture put in a box. It's like, you know, in a Faraday cage and everything. Mm-hmm. So there's no way he could be getting any sort of electromagnetic reading from this thing. And they asked him to remote view 
the picture that was the, or the thing that was in the box. And he started drawing these circles. And he drew 27, I believe it was 27 circles, like a, a bunch of grapes. And mm-hmm. it looked like a bunch of grapes. And that's what he said it was. And when they opened up the box, it was a picture of a bunch of grapes. And there were 27 circles. <laughs> So that, what are the chances of that alone? Astronomical. Astronomically yeah. small, that that could be coincidence. Yeah. You know, that we'd have the exact number of circles. So anyway, I was fascinated to find that there's been so much study about this. And, um, and this is how I, I, um, you know, I knew Leslie's work from, from, uh, her UFO book in 2010, was that? Mm-hmm. 2010. And then I was sitting in Barnes and Noble one day doing a bunch of research, uh, you know, reading. And then I went to the bathroom. And on my way, there was a book facing out on the top shelf, and it was Surviving Death. And I didn't see the name on it at that point. I was just on my way to the bathroom. And I thought, oh, Surviving Death. That's that. I'm going to have to come back and look at that. So I come back out, and I take it down, and it's Leslie's book. And I was like, oh, my gosh. You know, and I know I trust her, jur- her, her, you know, her journalistic integrity completely. And uh, so I thought this would be a fascinating read, which it was. And I read it, like, cover to cover. And I believe it was... I think it was the next day that I had posted something about the documentary I was making on Facebook and you, Ryan, uh, wrote to me and said, Oh, you know, I should put you in touch with Leslie Kane. I was like, well, you know, Le- I had no idea that you, that you knew Leslie, you had known her for She had read your book and blurb your book. And anyway, uh, it all led to, to Leslie and us, uh, L- Leslie and I meeting. And then we became, you know, friends and, and, yeah, just just the fact that I'm sitting in Leslie's apartment right now feels paranormal. <laughs> Pretty but, surreal. The, the yeah. dominoes that had a fall. Yeah. Uh, and then the book that she wrote, Surviving Death, is this fantastic book um, that study that that looks at the best evidence currently out there that suggests seems to suggest that consciousness might exist as something separate from the physical body and that it might survive the death of the physical body. Um, she looks at these various lines of evidence, all of which are fascinating. And uh, yeah, I guess, you know, I should, I'm doing all the well, talking here. No, 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 no. This, this is a good place to, um, to sort of look at the idea of afterlife. I think for a lot of people out there, it's, it's such a quote unquote morbid topic to explore. Uh, cause a lot of us are afraid of that, of what comes next. None of us truly know, mm. you know, the two biggest questions, what happens when you die? And is there life elsewhere in the universe? I think we're getting a lot closer to some of those answers to both of those questions, possibly, maybe not. But this is one that I, and I'm sure a lot of other people uh, in my place, shy away from. And we look at it as supernatural. It's paranormal. It's, it's, um, it's so far beyond that it's not even worth looking at in a scientific way. Yet now we have this book where you're exploring the science behind there possibly being an afterlife or past lives and the idea of consciousness. So I guess, Leslie, for those like me who are so simple-minded that we think it's heaven, they're just coming back to talk to you, like that's what it is, sort of in a religious way, I would say. Um, what What is the book about? That's a huge general question, but what what were you trying to to bring to the table when it came to uh, covering the afterlife? Yeah, I mean, I don't even think of it as the afterlife, really. I didn't even like it. It's in the subtitle of the book, A Journalist Investigates Evidence for an Afterlife. Yeah. We tried, me and my publisher, we tried so hard to find other language for it. It was just impossible. 
So I don't even, I don't know, don't even like that word that much. It's mm -hmm. more about the fact that consciousness, as Mike said, you know, there's, first of all, the first part of the book explores the fact that consciousness is obviously something that can function independent. I mean, I shouldn't say obviously, but there's a lot of evidence that shows that it can function independently of a brain. So if indeed, once you can establish that, which I believe I established that because based on research in the book, then the question becomes when the body completely disappears, does the same thing happen? And it's a very reasonable question to ask when you look at the data for the fact that it can function separately from the body. So then the reason is, and it's really when you talk about heaven and stuff, it's not about any belief systems. I wanted to write a book that explored hardcore evidence for this that would not, is not dependent on any belief systems or religions. I mean, it just, there's, there's no talk of God or heaven or any systems of belief in this. It's about, is there evidence for it physically, men, you know, that it happens? It doesn't matter what the belief systems are. So I also don't think it's morbid because if this is showing us that we're going to have a wonderful time after we die and we're actually not going to die, that's pretty exciting and positive. Yeah. And it takes a lot of the fear out of dying. So it actually takes away that sense that people have of, of this morbidity or this finality mm. or this horror of dying. Maybe dying isn't fun. But <laughs> right, right. when you're actually gone, what if you get to go somewhere that's really beautiful and even better than this or this existence yeah. that we have here? So it's it's opening the door to that possibility, not based on any belief systems, but based on actual research and experiences by very credible people. Mm -hmm. yeah. I, I just watched the show The Good Place, uh -huh. uh, you know, which is about these these four humans who who pass and it's about their um you know, their, their, uh, experience in the afterlife. It's, it's a great show. It's on, you can watch it on Netflix, but, uh, one of the lead characters at one point is talking to an immortal being on the other side, trying to explain what it's like to be a human. And she says, you know, we're all aware of death. So we're all a little bit sad all the time. And that can really be true in my own life. I remember being a young kid and I love my parents so much and, you know, we lost a goldfish and a puppy and everything. And I remember the topic was on my mind from a young age. I was very worried about losing my parents when I was young. And, and, and now, now that I did lose my dad at a rather young age that led me on this whole journey, you know, I see sort of a connective tissue there, um, that I was worried about it well before my dad passed. When I was a little kid, I was specifically worried about losing him for some reason when I was young. But anyway, so that's kind of true, right? We all know about death, so we're all a little bit sad all the time. Then what if there's something out there that can sort of mitigate that sadness a bit? And as Leslie just said, from what I gather from her book and the evidence out there, there is a lot to suggest that my dad did not simply disappear when his heart stopped beating. That some part of his, of who he was, is still around. That it somehow um, kept going and is paying attention in some way to my life. I mean, there is evidence, as far as I can tell, suggesting that's true. Now, in terms of evidence, yeah. I mean, that's... Because I could share with you how I initially got into this. Please do. Talking about like, yeah. Because it, I moved through the book into more of an experiential realm, which is, uh -huh. and I did a lot of the stuff with mediumship, which Mike has already touched on there. But what got me initially interested in this was these these uh, cases of young children, say between the ages of two and three, who 
talk about a past life that they say they had with such specificity that they'll give maybe 10 different specific points about it so that investigators are able to locate the person that they actually were in that past life and verify that all the things the child remembered were, were true. And there's at the University of Virginia, they are studying, There's a, a they have something called the Department of Perceptual Studies. Where a, the division, I think it's the division. Yeah, of, Jim, what is it, the division, division of Perceptual, of perceptual Studies? studies yeah. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Just because Jim Tucker corrected me on that. You could tell you two work together. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I feel like anyway, I'm in a buddy cop movie. They've been, there was a, a psychiatrist there named Ian Stevenson who studied these cases for decades and wrote volumes and volumes of case studies and, and was fascinated by them. And his work has been taken over by Jim Tucker, who Mike just mentioned, um, who's also, he's a child psychiatrist. And they have two, two, uh, 2,500 cases in their data file, database. Not all, and, but the interesting ones are the ones that are solved. There's hundreds of them in which you are able to verify that the memories were accurate. So when you have a young child who gives you this names of very specific names and all kinds of stuff like that, and then you can say, well, we found the person who they were, and you can go back to that person's family and you can verify everything, it's a pretty good argument for the reality of rebirth or reincarnation because it's very hard to explain it any other way. And so I was drawn into this really through that door because I found those, they were so concrete, those cases. You know, you, you know what they said. You make sure that it was on the record before any investigation took place so that you know that the parents didn't embellish it or decide to make things up to, you know, it's all got to be reported before anybody steps in to look into mm -hmm. it. And right. um, there's so much that goes along with it in terms of the emotional condition of the child, and they have nightmares about their previous death and their obsessions with things that they were interested in in the previous life. All this kind of stuff, this whole package. Right. Fascinating stuff. I mean, this, this line of inquiry alone, the evidence is so profound that Jim Tucker told me, I went down to the University of Virginia to interview him, because like Leslie, this this topic in particular really got my attention early on. And he said that, you know, when the Journal of the American Medical Association, right, that's one of the most respected peer-reviewed scientific journals in the world, uh, when they took a look at the evidence, their conclusion was that reincarnation was the most likely answer. And I said, what? JAMA said what? that? <laughs> why isn't, why doesn't everyone know that? Why wasn't that on the nightly news? that one of the most respected scientific journals in the world concluded, based on your research here at the Division of Perceptual Studies, which has been going on for... They, they recently had their 50th, yeah. their 50th anniversary. I mean, that's how striking the evidence is. You know, wow. we're just covering the very basics of these here, but I, I recommend people look into the stories. Um, what's the, uh, Yeah, I covered two cases in my book that yeah. are really outstanding. They're both American cases, and they're both fairly recent. Because mm -hmm. a lot of the original, earlier studies were, were, of course, Asian you know, cases in India and Burma and places where it's part of the culture to accept this. Uh, in terms of, like, Buddhism or yeah, religious belief you know, they're, they're, It's just accepted part of the culture, right. the, the, current, the religions, that these things happen. It's not strange. So the people talk about right. them a lot Here, if you more. have a kid who's talking about the past life, right. you're like, honey, let's not, not at parties. No, but more and more serious note they're told that they're just uh, fantasizing or dreaming or something and it's yes. all so when you have cases in america that have actually been where you've actually been able to solve them which means to find the previous personality and verify it it's pretty stunning and these cases were both remarkable i'm going to talk about this at the uh 
contact in the desert thing. Oh, okay. Oh, cool. Um, especially yeah, some of these cases because they're they're really stunning. Well, let me ask you guys this in your in your research, why why do you think it's kids? Well, the, what's impo- I mean, what's imp- the reason it's important that it's kids? Yeah. The reason those are the important cases to focus on is because those children have not been around to have any any other information come into their brains. Mm-hmm. They've been protect. They've just been with their parents basically. So the parents know everything they've been exposed to, and it makes it much more uh, hard to explain when a two year old starts talking about different types of World War II aircraft, for instance. Because he remembered being a pilot in a previous yeah. life. When he's never been exposed to anything like that. Now, if a 21-year-old starts talking about that, even if they say, I've never been exposed to this before, you know, any number of influences could have come into their right. mind. So when you have a little child, that's what's that's so, so, so evidential about it, coming mm-hmm. out with these things that they couldn't possibly ever know at that age. Like two years old sometimes. Yeah. yeah. This this little James Lining or this case was two years. And he was talking about the names of a of different types of aircraft, the ship name that he flew off of in the Battle of Iwo Jima, you know. That's insane. And he would talk about, like, in his pan- and have nightmares about a plane crash and all this stuff. It's just, you know. Wow. It just, and the parents get really freaked out. Of course. It's really, really hard for them because their child is, some. they're often, you know, obsessed with things. And it just, I mean, it depends. Like, every case is different, but anyway. So that's why the the most evidential cases for reincarnation by far are the ones where these little children do this. Right. So it's not adults that go into regression, do hypnotic regression or something, you know, it's interesting, but it's not the same level in terms of evidence. So it's not so much that adults aren't having these past life experiences, but it's the kids that have the most verifiable evidence. Well, what it is also is that almost all of these kids, almost 100% of them, there are some exceptions, completely forget the memories by the time they're about eight years old. Really? Yeah, they stop having access to the memories, most of them. Again, (sighs) there are exceptions to that 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 we know of. But, um, yeah, most of them forget. So it seemed that would suggest to me that... It somehow has something to do with the development of the brain, you know, because mm-hmm. the brain is changing, obviously, as you're growing. And at some point, for whatever reason, something uh, stops these memories from, from happening. So I speculate that it could be uh, something about the structure, the changing structure of the brain that no longer, uh, once it reaches a certain point in its uh, growth process, for some reason, that antenna, for lack of a better word, seems to no longer pick up that frequency or whatever it is that's going on. So that's why it's kids that, that are, we focus on because they, we just forget uh, most kid most, most of the kids forget. And also I would assume kids are going to be the most honest with you. There's no baggage. There's no preconceived notions of what it could be, what it couldn't be. You can't make stuff up. Exactly. I mean, you can't make up the name of a battleship. It's either exists or it doesn't. You can't right. make it up, you know, and, and they couldn't possibly have known it. The name of that battleship, by the way, was the Natoma Bay. So the, it wasn't like, you know, the, the, you know, some simple name. Right. Dad was like, what was the name of the battleship? And he said the Natoma. And his dad thought, that sounds that sounds Japanese, it sounded to his dad. So so he thought it must be a mistake. But he came to find out there sure was a, a battleship called the, or an aircraft Natoma carrier. Bay. The Natoma, yeah, the Natoma aircraft, Bay. An aircraft, I should say battleship. Yeah, aircraft, aircraft carrier. carrier. Yeah. Sorry. I'm so ignorant about that. <laughs> so some of the, you know, some of the, the evidence is, as Leslie said, incredibly specific to the point that um, in hundreds of, of the cases at, at the University of Virginia, they've been able to locate who the person is. So the kid's given either an address or a family name, you know, something that allows them to. And in the most fascinating of the cases, 
there are um, physiological aspects involved. So the, the kid will have some sort of either a birth defect or a birthmark of some kind that corresponds to how the previous person died. Mm. So in one of, in a great case that happened here in New York, Leslie, you probably remember the, the police officer. Do you remember this? There was a police officer uh, who was shot through his heart and he died. And his grandson, when he was born at very young, two years old, started saying that he was his mom's father, this guy who was shot. And he had memories. He said, I was shot. I was killed. Uh, and he, he remembered the circumstances of, um, the way his grandfather had passed. And not only that, he had a congenital heart defect, uh, that he had to have this operation for, um, that corresponded to, you know, the, the, the way that the grandfather died. He had been shot through the heart. There are cases where, you know, there's a birthmark uh, on the front of a person in the back, say, and the one on the front is sort of small and a little more regular, and the one on the back is bigger and irregular. And when they find the previous personality, they find out that they've been shot from through the chest and the entrance wound. You know, and they have in the, in the best cases, we have autopsy reports. We mm-hmm. have photographs where we can match up the, the photographs from the autopsy report to the, the places on the kid's body where the birthmarks are. So it's not just kids having memories. It's there, there are other aspects to it as well. Now, I guess moving a little away from past life, a lot of the other evidence that you've explored, Leslie, is um, the idea of mediumship. I mean, you said yourself that's what kind of got you into this. Now, in terms of that, who or why do you think certain people are chosen to be these conduits for what could possibly be someone in the afterlife or um, are more sensitive to that. Is there any type of prerequisite for being a medium, I guess? I mean, in my experience, the ones, the really good ones are born with this sensitivity. Okay. The two that I, you know, went to see that I talk about in my book, the incredible readings that I had were both, they had all kinds of experiences as kids seeing dead people, you know, just sensitivities they knew when someone was going to die in their family, that kind of thing. And in the beginning, they often think it's normal that everybody has these abilities until they learn that, that it's not as they grow older. And then um, there might come a time, particularly in adolescence, where they don't want to be different from anybody. So they, this happens a lot where they, they sort of turn it off for a while. But it's a latent ability that they have. And I don't know. I mean, it even runs in some families. Laurel and Jackson's uh, had family history of this. So, you know, it's, I don't know if anybody can really say for sure, like, why some people would have it and why they don't, but I, I do think that it's something sort of innate that, that they really, if they're really good at it, that they've had for a long time. But, you know, it's different for everyone. Or they might not even realize it until they're older that they have the ability. But, um, I don't think there's any way to say why one person has it and another doesn't. You know, going back to the interview you, you guys just did with, Le- uh, with Leslie and Diana, you were talking at the end there about, the experiencers of the of the you know UFO phenomenon, how some people uh, can per- seem to be uh, more prone to seeing these things than other people, and you were saying that maybe there's something about their brain, right, that mm-hmm. makes this yeah, possible. Yeah, maybe it's a similar thing. It's an interesting phenomenon, but definitely the mediumship thing. Yeah, and I also did a, had an opportunity to sort of test it the same way that Mike did, and it was amazing. You know, I mean, would you and, would you mind sharing? Sure, because I wrote about it in the book. Okay. Um, 
my first reading was with a medium named Laurel and Jackson, and I'd never... And this was so... When I got to the point in my, in my investigation of realizing that there's a lot of evidence for consciousness to function independently of the body, then the, the question immediately arose me, well, if that's the case, then can we communicate mm-hmm. with this consciousness when it is not in the body? Is that another way of verifying it? Or just out of curiosity, well, wow, can we communicate with it in that state? And the way to, one way to approach that question is to, to, to study mediumship, which is basically a person serving as sort of a telephone operator for somebody who wants to contact someone on the other side. And so that's what they do. So, yes, they are, communic- they are apparently delivering information from a disembodied consciousness to a person. So you go to that medium, and in my first reading, it was on the phone. So they don't know what it looked like. They, they, they have no visual cues or anything like that with this amazing medium named Laurelyn Jackson. And uh, she just delivered unbelievably specific information, um, you know, which of t- from two people. One of them was Bud Hopkins, the UFO investigator, who I was very close to. And I was actually with him when he died in 2011. Mm. And the second one was my brother, who acted, who died very unexpectedly in 2013 when I was while I was writing this book. My younger brother, so that was really tragic. But it was incredible because I ended up it ended up opening a lot of doors for me, not just with mediumship, but in other ways too. So they both were there, and I, I mean, I'm not going to go into all specifics because it would take forever. But just you know, the ability to identify the people, not just with information, but also through their personalities. You know, these two people had opposite personalities, and that also came through in the reading. And there's just, you know, a lot of stuff that there was no way she could have known, particularly with my brother, who was, nobody knows anything about him. But as a public figure, but she would have had to look him up, which she doesn't do. So the interesting, but in terms of the testing thing, so there were two things my, each of them said, each of them said something to me that was very personal. So I, when I went and did my second reading about two months later, I meditated and asked these two people, Bud and my brother, to repeat what something they had said to me in the first reading with the second reading. I said, if this is really you, I want you to repeat something in the second reading that you said in the first one. I don't care what it is, because they said a lot. And I, I had I never thought it would ever happen. I just thought, it's a lark. I'll, I'll just test this. And if, if it doesn't work, I never have to tell anybody about it, you know, whatever. Why not? So I just really earnestly asked them, and then it happened. I had the second reading with a medium who didn't even know my name because I, I I signed up with her with a fake name. Uh, it was on Skype, so she did see what I looked like. But in both of them repeated the most personal, most evidential thing they said to me from the first reading in the exact same word. And you know, when that happens to you, it's like what happened to Mike. You just, your jaw drops open and it's a moment of transcendence. It's a moment of, as he said, a shift in paradigm where you just suddenly think, oh my God, you know, and you're in an altered state really with that for a while because it shifts your whole perception of, of reality. Right. That how can this be? How can it, how can I communicate with them? I mean, how else could that happen unless there was a whole lot of very sophisticated telepathy and clairvoyance going on with these two mediums. They didn't know each other. They'd never spoken to each other. I made sure of that. So when, you know, you have these moments and then of course, and what I did with these readings too, was I, I taped them of course. So I was able to write down everything they said and kind of do a percentage calculation of accuracy. I did a lot of analysis of both of them only afterwards because while you're having it, you just want to let go of the experience of it, you know? So it was just so 
mind-blowing and, and incredible to sort of enter into that reality. And I so that's how you become, as an investigator, you also become someone who, as I was talking about earlier, a sort of experiencer at the same time. Because there's no other way you can do it. I was going to ask, that you struggle know, of... It's no. both at once. And I, I feel yeah. like I'm very able to make that... Uh, I'm very able to do both at once. Okay. I think some people would have a harder time. They're either very analytical or very experiential, but I, it's just right. one of the things I happen to be able to do. And so I was able to step back from those readings and really analyze them and ask a lot of questions about them, but allow myself in the moment to really just be in the experience. And that's what you have to do. Right. And I mean, being the fact that you're both very journalistic and or skeptical in every best sense of the word skeptical. How do you, when you have a paradigm shift like that, like many UFO experiencers do as well, how do you go on day to day ordering your coffee or mm. um, seeing people going into a church and coming out and being like, I've spoken to the disembodied well, consciousness or spirit of my father. Like, on that just please, yeah, yeah, initially, please. because, you know, you're never, first of all, once you step back a little bit, you're never 100% sure. Of course, yeah. So there's always that little element, well, maybe it wasn't, or maybe... And also, you don't stay in that sort of state of epiphany all the time. Right. right. You you go back into your regular life, and just, it, yeah, it's not like it's a constant, a shift <laughs> in your mind that never goes away, you yeah. know? So it's not like you're not living in the real world at all. And I'm always questioning it. I'm always... And I've had so many more experiences. We're, we're the worst, because like, we really had <laughs> some incredible doubt, things. We doubt so much. Yeah. I'm starting to do it less. We've seen but, some incredible things, and constantly we're like, well, but maybe, we, you know. You know, you always try to find an explanation, and then when you really can't, it's yeah. good. Because yeah. then when you really can't find that explanation, you're much more comfortable accepting that it is something anomalous, yeah. you know, okay. that it really is. But, you know, with mediumship, the, the problem with mental mediumship, which is the type we were just talking about, is that, I mean, a skeptic, although it's not really a skeptic, but you can make the argument that perhaps the medium's acquiring all the information through some extraordinary ability of, to read your mind or to see things at a distance, which is clairvoyance, hmm. and that maybe, therefore, no dead person has to be involved for them to be able to do this. Hmm. It gets harder to explain when they give you information that you don't know, so it's not in your mind for them to read. They'd have to be finding it through someone else's mind. Lots of times people will get information where they think, no, what are you talking about? That's the wrong answer. And then they'll go ask their mother two weeks later, and mm -hmm. it was, what was the story you had about that birth certificate, that name? Oh, my grandfather. And they, you, yeah. you think it's the wrong thing, and then you find out, and you're like, how could she get that information? So, huh. He's got a really good example. For yeah, that. this yeah. one, and, uh, yeah, I had my sister had a, I set up a reading with a, a medium named George Anderson, who's pretty well known. And uh, we filmed it, and I had my sister have a reading with him, and he didn't know that it was my sister. Now we do look similar, so he could have he could have sussed that out, but uh, I don't think that he did. It was my instinct anyway that he didn't have any idea that this person was anything to do with me. Anyway, the reading uh, he gave to her was really incredible, including coming up with uh, names, you know, like my dad's name, my my uh, my grandfather's name, my grandmother's name. At one point, he said, I, "I was sitting in the back of the room behind the cameras," and at one point, he said to my sister, uh, "Mike." Who's Mike? There's someone named Mike that's really important here. And of course, that's my name. But anyway, the, the real fascinating one was he said, I have your grandfather, Jim, here. Your, your mom's father, Jim. And that was his name, Jim. And then he said, no, wait a second. 
Jim is what they called him, but his birth certificate would, would have said Vincenzia. And I was behind the camera going, no, that's wrong. You know, I wish he had just stopped at Jim because that was so cool. <laughs> he was so right for a second there. And, uh, and then to my surprise, my sister said, yes, that's right. And I was like, what? So it came to find out later that I, I guess I'm a bad grandson. I had no idea. It would have said Vincenzo on his birth certificate. So anyway, I called my mom afterwards and she has his birth certificate. And sure enough, his name was Vincenzo. He wow. just called Jim. Hey, y'all. Ryan Sprague here. As you all know, the Somewhere in the Skies podcast is always free to consume, but it isn't free to create. That's why I've started the Somewhere in the Skies Patreon campaign. On a monthly basis, you give what you think the show is worth. You'll be helping the show continue, grow, and to be something truly communal. And remember, there are rewards for each level of contribution, and the list is only growing. So please, help Somewhere in the Skies now by becoming a patron. To contribute and to learn more, visit www.patreon.com backslash somewhere skies. Thank you for your support. And now, on with the show. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. But we did, we did do a test like, so once I had this experience, with Angelina, the first one, I then thought, okay, well, maybe she was reading my mind. Now, that alone that shatters alone the, yeah. the materialistic paradigm, yeah, right? That alone. That's a whole other layer. that's the only right. other possible explanation other than cheating. And if you can eliminate cheating, it's either has to be telepathy or right. it's a dead person. But but the current science does, yeah. says telepathy is not possible, right? right. Just that alone right. is not possible. So to test whether or not the medium was reading my mind, we went to see a, another medium a few months later, a different medium in Long Island, a guy named Jonathan Lewis. And I said, okay, mom, you know, we're, we're going to drive down to Long Island. We were up in Connecticut. When we leave here, I want you to sit on the porch and talk to dad and ask him to say a specific thing. Don't tell us what it is. Just you talk to him once we leave 
and ask him to say a specific thing. So we go and we have this reading, and again, it's phenomenal. This guy's coming up with names, with, with things that just happened, on, stuff we had talked about on the drive there in the car. He referenced a conversation we had on the drive, things like that. It was extraordinary. One thing he said, though, didn't make sense. He said, does your mom have a bad toe? And we said, no, you know, no. And he said, okay, I'm, I'm just going to leave that with you. Just, you know, just keep it in mind. Uh, and then on the drive back, we called my mom and we told her everything he said. And then when my sister got to the bad toe, my mom got silent on the phone because she was crying. And we're like, what, what, what? That was the thing. Apparently my mom has a crooked toe. And when she was sitting on the porch, uh, she had her shoes off and she looked down at her toe and she said, okay, Robert, have him mention my crooked toe. Oh my God. So he didn't say the word crooked. He said the word bad. bad. He said bad toe. But... Uh, that's that still pretty, pretty damn close. Pretty close. <laughs> so at that point, I knew, okay, well, that didn't come out of my mind. If this is some form of telepathy, advanced telepathy, he somehow found my mom in Connecticut and got it out of her brain, which is just as extraordinary as it being my dad, you know? Yeah. Like, so. I have a question. Um, I'd like to get your, both your personal thoughts on this. Um, now, I, I've never really had a paradigm shifting experience like that in terms of what we're talking about today. However, when my grandfather died, who I was very close to, when he died, I hoped and prayed as the, you know, conditioned Catholic I was growing up that he would, you know, I'd hear from him or hear his voice or a a sign would come to me and it never did. And I, I waited years and years for that to happen. And I kept thinking, I I was so close to you. Like, there's got to be a way f- to bridge that gap. Like, come on, what? And nothing, nothing ever happened. And then one night, I had a dream, and he wasn't the focal point of the dream by any means. But I saw him in the background in the dream, and it was the first time I had had a dream about him since he died. Mm-hmm. And I just remember him coming forward in the dream at one point, and he started talking to me, and. All I remember him saying is, I'm here. What do you want to talk about? And then I woke up. Oh, but still, he was there, right? He was there. And so my question for you is, what What do you think when we dream, this This is a whole other aspect of this, um, how we interpret those dreams? Is that the consciousness? Is that them trying to communicate with us? Because I know that is a big part of all this, too, is people have dreams about their loved ones visiting them and everything. Um what role do dreams play in all this? Yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm not really that much of an expert on it, but I know that, I mean, I had one dream involving my brother, and I know, I've heard this from other people, too, that there's a quality, when they, what they call a dream visitation in the research. Um, there's a quality to that dream that's different from your average dream, that it, it's, way more, it's really vivid, it's really intense, you never forget it. You know, most dreams you wake up and they kind of, dribble away you don't remember them this is something that has a huge impact and it's it's more alive and more intense than any other dream and you you can recognize the different quality that it has yeah. and so i think that's one way to sort of characterize what you know people feel to be an actual visitation in the dream state as opposed to just them having a dream and i remember one i had one like that involving my brother where i woke up and it was in the country, and it was dead quiet and dead, you know, pitch bar black in my room, which I love, because in New York, you never can have pitch dark. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
And when I, I just woke up during the night and I heard his voice really clearly. I mean, it just happened to me once before, but I heard him say my name. I didn't think much about it and I went back to sleep. And it was right after that, that this very, very powerful dream happened where I really felt it to be a visitation from him, a message. And he was showing me something and it was showing me who he really was. And it was, and I've never forgotten it. So that's sort of the way I think you can describe these kinds of dreams. But I also think they're very subjective and people are going to have these experiences in all different ways. And really you as the person having the dream has to decide whether, what that means to you. I mean, if it doesn't have that intense quality, you might still be getting a message from your loved one through a dream, yeah. you know? Yeah. And you felt that was your grandfather. So, I could smell the smoke on his breath. Yeah. So there he was you a go. smoker his whole life. Mm-hmm. So there, there, therefore, that makes it your grandfather. I mean, yeah. it doesn't matter in one level whether there's some objective reality, whether it was or wasn't or not, because it's, it's an experience that you had, and what it means to you is what's important. And if that was yeah. your grandfather, then it was. I, I think that really you plays know? into the yeah. your idea of we play a big role as the active participant in all this. Definitely, and I it's think how some we interpret it. Yeah. And some experiences are more can be more objectified than others, but dreams, you know, no. I mean, dreams are, are extremely obviously personal and subjective, and so you decide if that person visited you. You'll know. You knew. I think a, a person having an experience like that knows when that's has that level of meaning for them and a wanting. <laughs> I think yeah. too. Like, I think when I wanted you have that to yearning, that. you're gonna. Chances are, you're going to hear from that person, right? But I, I don't know. I feel bad for people when it doesn't happen, right? I know. Yeah. You know, and, yeah. and like some people will say, it's always going to happen no matter what. Yeah. Like Laura Lynn Jackson will say that. Mm. I don't know what happens when it doesn't. I didn't expect these things to happen to me, but then they started to, and then I started to ask for them to happen yeah. more. What, so, just when I was ready to give up is when it happened. Yeah. That's so good. Yeah. I'm glad it did. And yeah, something to say about this is that, you know, dreams, who know, like the brain is a complete mystery to us, right? Basically, I mean, of course, there are brilliant neuroscientists out there that have a lot of things mapped out and figured out. But really, when it comes down to it, we've only scratched the tip of the iceberg with regard to the, the brain. It's like this miraculous, unbelievable thing stuck between our ears that we barely understand, right? So so when I answer this question, I am not a neuroscientist, obviously, right? I'm a bartender. So I just want to, uh, you know... You're a therapist in some way. Yeah, but I just upfront state that. And, and there's a big difference between what science... Can, can be used for and what an experience means to a person, right? Like a person can have a life changing experience that is useless to science, right? Like my experience with Angelina, where she said the thing, a scientist would obviously not be able to do anything with that data, right? It's an anomaly. It's a, it's a one off thing. They'd say there's, you know, but to me, it was life changing. So it's the same thing with these dreams. Like what, what exactly is happening there? Who knows? But if it is meaningful to the person who has the dream, that's what matters, right? But to try to get into some of this, the very basic science about this, the brain we know uh, does give off waves, right? We know that it operates in, in different wavelengths, like there's alpha, theta, and beta. Mm-hmm. And uh, the typical day-to-day walking around brain is operating in alpha, I believe it is, right? 
and I'm pretty sure it's alpha waves. And when you go to sleep, it's it's getting down into into beta and like really really deep sleep. I think is is theta. I believe. And, um, you know, there have been some mediums who've been hooked up to, to, uh, you know, in, uh, electroencephalograms. Is that, what it, is that what it's called? The ones that test the brain, you know, the brain waves. And, uh, sure enough, some of them are showing that the brain patterns seem to, uh, the brain wave patterns seem to change when they go into, uh, this meditative state that they say facilitates then this communication that they claim is coming from the other side. Yeah. So there, there is some science that can be done. There is some empirical evidence that we can gather, at least with regard to how the brain seems to be functioning. And when we go to sleep at night, we're obviously going into a different state of consciousness and our brain waves are changing when we sleep. And is it possible that one form of brain wave is more conducive to, to again, acting as some sort of an antenna uh, than other brain waves? Maybe that's true. Maybe our waking brain is filtering out in some way. Maybe this stuff operates on some completely spe- speculation, obviously, but maybe this stuff uh, operates on some wavelength that, that just doesn't penetrate a waking brain and that the brain needs to get into a different state of, of a vibration in a sense before, uh, like if we just, if we accept the, the idea that uh, consciousness can exist as something separate from the brain, what is the brain's function then? in that you know what, what what is the brain is it a you know the big question is current science says that the brain generates consciousness right mm-hmm. the brain is the generator of consciousness what we think of as consciousness and when the heart stops beating and blood stops flowing and the electrical impulses end so does consciousness so does what you think of as you what we're investigating here and what Leslie has investi- investigated with this book is the possibility that the brain is not the generator of consciousness, but is some sort of a receiver of consciousness mm. in some kind of a way. And, um, and so if that is the case, that it is some sort, sort of a receiver, then the state of that receiver would change what sorts of things it can pick up, you would think. So like a radio... Right. If, if you're tuning the frequency right now, we're sitting in this room and there are hundreds of different radio stations and Wi-Fi signals. Right. All of this is here right now. We can't see it or hear it or interact with it because our brains aren't set up to be antennas to that. But if we turned on a radio, suddenly this apartment would be flooded with sound that's here right now. We just can't hear it. And uh, perhaps there's something about the dream state. It's like changing the dial on the on the radio. That makes it so, you, so your brain is now picking up things that were here before, but that it just couldn't register for whatever reason. And because I've had those dreams after my dad passed, and they, for me, again, totally subjective, but were of an entirely different quality than my typical dreams. Most of my dreams are nonsense. Like I have no idea what they're all about, you know? And Playing poker with your boss. Exactly. Yeah. Sometimes I'm just planet Neptune. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, like, yeah, my subconscious is like this weirdo place. As it turns out, my dreams are just weird, but these ones with my dad are usually very simple. Like he's just a lot of times it's no more than he's there and he's smiling at me and he hugs. It gets me emotional. Like, cause these dreams still, it's still when I really, um, recall these dreams, it's really powerful, uh, cause they are such a different, different thing. So, so yeah, that's a big, long, uh, convoluted answer to, to what, how dreams play into this, but no, it's, I mean, again, it's, this is all subjective if we right. really look at it, yeah. but 
narrowing in on the evidence, which is what Leslie's done in the book, and I think the furthering research that the two of you are doing together, is it's subjective, but at the same time, you can't argue it. It's fact. It's so evidence. It's fact that it happens. It's fact that it happens. The, the, the real question about something like mental mediumship is you can document that it happens and there's no way she could have cheated. But the, the question that remains, as I said, is, is was it there? How did they get that information? Right. Right. And that's and you can't prove that that information came from a dead person. Right. If you're looking at it objectively, you as a sitter, as somebody who's receiving it, can really feel that that's where it was from because there's there's more than just information. It's personality traits, it's styles of talking. Right. You know, lots of other things that enter into it. So it certainly feels that way. Yeah. But you can't objectively prove it. But the, there are some things that you can. Oh yeah, yeah. there are. Oh my like, god. Um, the, there's another type of mediumship. And again, I only I only get to this at the very end of my book. Okay. So I don't want any... I want to tell your listeners, if they read the book, read it in order. Okay. Don't skip around. Okay. Because... Got to build up. Save the best for got to build up for this, because <laughs> it's really the hardest thing to understand, but it's a type of mediumship called physical mediumship. And in that scenario, and it's very rare, very rare, uh, there are physical manifestations that occur in a room... With, a, with this particular medium, it's usually a group of people, and everybody sees the same thing. So that, therefore, it really is objective that these things are happening. I mean, uh, again, it's hard to explain how they happen, but they're physical things that actually do happen. And lots and lots and lots of people can see them, and they can be repeated over and over and over again. Is this what I assume is what uh, the seance work would be? Yeah, yes. I mean, they yeah. call these meetings seances. I I don't like the word. Okay. Has all these I don't know. I know how to use term. that anymore. I know. Yeah, you think of people in we the call 1920s sitting. sitting around with it, with right, the, right. Around the right, because we have these right. yeah, assumptions of, of what it looks like. Right. So, yeah. for lack of a better word, um, it's it's these meetings that you have with this physical medium, and it's a group that he works with on a regular basis called a circle. He calls it his home circle. Are the medium we're talking about is a man named Stuart Alexander, who's in the UK. He's in his 70s and doing this for like 40 years. Mm-hmm. Um, absolutely genuine, never been caught in fraud or anything like that. I know him, I've known him for five years and studied his mediumship in, in great depth. So I vouch for him. This is an individual you both yes, spoken right. to? Well, on Ryan's separate occasions? We know Ryan, him well. He's met him as well. Now, yeah. I, I'm not going to give away what happens at the end of Leslie's oh, of book because I want people to, to buy it and read it. Yeah. But I'll just tell you that when I read the last chapter of her book, most of what's in the book I'd been aware of because I'd been studying it for the documentary I was working on. It's the last chapter on physical mediumship. The last two, right? The last two chapters, My my account of it and then Stuart's chapter that he wrote himself. Yeah. Yeah. But when I read her account of what she witnessed, which I won't say specifically, I was like, what? Come on. And then less than a year after reading that in, in her book, I was sitting in England with Leslie and this man, Stuart Alexander, and I saw the thing happen right in front of my eyes that Leslie talks about in the book. It's real, right? So like she was saying, there are some things that just simply are objectively true, are objectively real. And when I saw this thing happen, talk about a paradigm shifting moment. When I had the mental medium thing happen, when, when the medium mentioned the thing, the code word, that blew me away. And I, from then on, started to believe that my dad really was here and that the quote-unquote paranormal is normal. But when I saw this thing happen, it moved me from believing it was real to knowing it was real. And that is a jump. That's a quantum leap. It's a shift between night and day, between believing, given all of the evidence, you know, and, and, and all of the statistics. 
that's belief. But seeing that and knowing it, I, I can't describe how big of a shift that was in my life. Because once, once, once you see that something like that, that is so far outside of what science has always told me is the way that this thing works, this universe works, then it really, it, like Whitley Strieber describes it as cracking the cosmic egg, I think, where like it just, it sort of shatters your sense of reality. And suddenly you're open to new, um, to the truth, I guess, right? Because we're, we have these narratives in our heads that are so easily created and mythologies are so easily created, right? We hear a thing, like when I was young and I was reading about mediumship, I might have heard that, oh, Houdini, he, he debunked mediumship, physical mediumship. There's no truth to that. That's all I did was hear that. And that became my narrative and that became my truth. Yeah. Just like that. Just because somebody said it. I don't even remember who it was who said it or what they might have known or didn't know. And after you actually study the actual phenomenon, you find out that there's way more to the story than Houdini, quote-unquote, debunked mediumship. There's way more to that story. So once you see what Leslie describes in her book, it really opens your eyes. Um, and, 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 now it, and now you can start to look at um, what's really there rather than what your, your brain has led you to believe is the Yeah, case. because the, the important thing about it is that multiple people can witness the same thing mm-hmm. over tens, you know, decades. Yeah. So some of the phenomena that occur there, um, probably hundreds of people have seen by now. Oh, yeah, yeah hundreds. And they see the same things, you know. Mm-hmm. We can give an example of one, which is not the big one that Mike didn't want to talk about. We want to sell copies of your book. Yeah. Well, I'm not, I don't know. But <laughs> one of, it's too hard to talk about it because you've got to build up to it. Yeah. Because I give a lot of supporting evidence in the book that, that before right. I talk about witnessing this myself, because it's been documented throughout, you know, in history a couple of times. And once people read that, they'll be way more open to accepting its reality. But to give an example of something a little less spectacular, but which is also spectacular, is what an example of one thing that occurs is um, levitation of things or movement of things. So you're in a dark room. There's a whole lot of reasons why it's dark, which I don't know if we're going to go into right now. But it is in the dark. And for, for, for paranormal things to occur, lots of times you need darkness. Just Can I assume it's... Yeah. A sense deprivation sort it's of thing? It's not really. No. No. We are aware that this is a huge red flag, but okay. we just want to say outright, we know, yeah, obviously, I mean, that's, that's a red why flag. We could spend the whole half hour talking about it. I don't know yeah. if we want to. If people can just... Uh, no, that's fine. Some of know, the phenomenon is light sensitive. As, light as crazy sensitive. as it sounds, uh, the stuff that is involved in this physical phenomenon is uh, very sensitive. Yeah. I accept and that. And I do. Yeah. I do. There's a lot of scientists, I, I quote them in my book, that have looked into it to try to explain why. Okay. So I just, you know... If people can just suspend that critique for now, um, because and and in Stewart's uh, seances room, the lights do go on for some of the time. It's not all in the dark. Okay, like this, this thing that I saw. Okay, I saw in light. Yeah, I've seen yeah. this. You know, there's some stuff that's in the light. It's and it's not like he's trying to hide anything. But for some things to occur, they need to be in the dark for whatever reason. But this object that that levitates is lit up. So it's it's called a trumpet. It's kind of a tradition in physical mediumship. It's like a cone-shaped thing, maybe about a foot long, foot and a half. It's like a megaphone kind of shaped thing. Okay. And the, 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 the large opening has a luminous tape around it, so you can see it. So it starts off on the floor, and um, you can see it rise up into the air, and it, it flies all around the room. It goes around and touches people very gently and specifically, like in the pitch dark, but it'll still like... 
it, it's been like times where it's stroked my whole face very gently but doesn't touch my glasses. Okay. You know, things like that, or it'll touch somebody on the shoulder. And you, you can see it because it's lit up. It's right. flying all over the room, and this is a physical object that's not supposed to be able to do that. And that's, that's almost like um, the kindergarten of this stuff. Right. I mean, that's so kind of easy. Yeah. After a while, it reminds me of Matilda. Yeah. Almost. <laughs> when I saw that happen, because I saw that first, you know, like, that was the first thing really that I amazing. saw. I was like, "Oh my god! It's so what, beautiful. Where do we go from it's here? Happening here. Yeah. What am I seeing? You know, it's like hard to really. Uh, <laughs> I imagine it's sort of like seeing a UFO. It's something so out of the yeah, realm it's of really what you're daily. Thing. It really experience. is gorgeous. It's so yeah. gorgeous. It's just like so much fun to see it, and you yeah. get into this very wonderful kind of amazed, almost childlike totally. state of just awe. You mm-hmm. know? It's really, really fun. I, I described my, in my book the first time I ever witnessed that. Okay. So anyway, we could... we go, But the, I think the point is that some phenomena that suggest survival of consciousness are e- more easily objectified than others. Yeah. And even those, although those same thing, we can't really prove that they're being created by dead people. Right. Can't prove it objectively, but it sure seems that way when you're in the room. Because there are spirit people or voices who speak through the medium that are people, they say, who once lived on the earth. And they're, they're really consistent characters that you get to know over time. The whole thing sounds really, really insane. So that's why I'm telling people you've got to... Yeah. You've got to read other stuff first and kind of get prepared Did, to didn't be you open tell me to this. You even like hesitated to include this in the book, didn't you, initially? Because um, it was... Uh... Yeah, I think I more hesitated to include my own personal experiences, which I guess is partly this. Yeah, yeah. okay. Yeah, I mean, it, it was. It was really... And I think the only way I could have ever done it was the fact that I, I showed some documentation that was done by scientists mm-hmm. of this happening under extremely controlled conditions, yeah. way more so than with Stuart, you know, in terms of the tight controls. And so I've been able to establish other incidences where it's been documented over, throughout in the last 100 years. By Nobel Prize winners. Yeah, really sophisticated people who were skeptics and then who published articles about it in some journals and stuff like that. So you kind of get, okay, it's happened before. It's airtight. Yeah. Well, then why can't it happen now? Right. And it does. But it's very rare. Very rare. I think it's interesting to what role language plays in a lot of this. Now, I mean, we have these words that we always think of when it comes to this stuff, you know, mm-hmm. consciousness, the, the soul, if we're looking at it more from a religious aspect. What role do you think language plays in how we interpret these anomalous things when it comes to past life, afterlife? Um, I, I know you don't like that term. I mean, I don't mind it that yeah, much, but I try. But that stay, alone, right there, after I try to use language that's as non-religious as possible, right. so that it's universal, right. so that everybody can relate to it. Yeah, well, like, it, yeah. There, there's the word uh, that you'll read a lot about in Leslie's book, um, ectoplasm, right? Which when well, I, I thought first... we weren't going to get into that. Mike. <laughs> well, I'm not going to get into like what I see. Once you've opened the door to that, we're in oh trouble. no! Well, oh, just, no. just as far as words go, you know, like I, I, I knew that word from Ghostbusters. Me too. <laughs> you know, so when I, I still, when I'm like out in public talking about this stuff, I like look over my shoulder before I say the word ectoplasm. Yeah. You know, I keep saying to Stuart, like, we got to come up with a different, <laughs> we, we need a different word. <laughs> it's so loaded now. Yeah. Uh, but because, yeah, language matters, you know, that's. But that's something very specific. I think you're talking yeah. more about like a word like consciousness as opposed to soul, as opposed yeah, to when, spirit. Mm-hmm. As a, 
And I think the key is to try to use language that's most universal. You can right. apply. So if somebody wants to think of it as a soul, that's fine. But I use the word consciousness a lot because it's sort of general. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you could also say the question is, does consciousness survive death? You could also say, does, is there a soul that survives death? It's the same question, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Um, is there a heaven? It's the same thing as if there's an afterlife. It just depends on how you want to frame it. Mm-hmm. But if you use language that's apl- applicable within any any context, that, that works the best. Yeah. So yeah. that's the way I look at it. Because words immediately conjure, right, those narratives. Certain images. Built in our brains. Certain yeah. images, yeah. Yeah, like Angelina is interesting. She's a medium. Most of them don't do this, but Angelina talks about heaven all the time. A lot. Mm-hmm. She said, mm-hmm. and she said, because I had a reading with her recently, the one that uh, Mike had had a reading with earlier, she said... Um, I, I believe in, I use the word heaven. That's, that's my, my word for it. And I, you know, it's fine. She just explained that. And that's the word she uses. So, you know, everybody has to find their own framework that works for them. But it all basically in its essence means the same thing. It's kind of pointing to the same thing. Right. Yeah. It's like people who have near death experiences, for instance, right? Where they're, they're clinically dead. There's no brain, no discernible brain activity or, or heart activity. And they'll, they'll have these incredible experiences. And Leslie also writes about this in her, in her book. Um, and it depends on where you're from, what culture and maybe what your beliefs are. It definitely appears that a person's beliefs in life can um, affect what they experience when their heart stops beating. You know, like well, a, a young kid who's raised uh, a Catholic um, might see what he calls Jesus, whereas a, a young kid uh, in, in India might see uh, a, a, a Hindu uh, goddess, you, you know, it, it, um, or just like a rainbow and puppies. Like, you know, it, it, it seems to... The, the, the phenomenon of, 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 of having these experiences after our brains stop functioning, um, it's not like just all, it's not all the same. You know, it does appear yeah. that your thoughts about what might be coming after death can, can influence what you at least at least with respect to perceive. some kind of deity or something like that. Yeah, yeah. But, right. but there are other elements of it that really aren't affected by culture. Right. Like if you're in, or if you might, a lot of times people see, experience uh, meetings with deceased relatives or loved ones that have gone before them, and that's yeah. pretty universal. Yeah, there are universal aspects of it. Yeah. yeah. Well, let me ask you guys this. I mean, we had in our previous discussion with Diana Pasalka saying that a quote unquote. Uh, abduction and or alien extraterrestrial experiencer who was having an experience with a, what he believed to be a close encounter with a non-human intelligence uh, saw a deceased loved one in the same experience. And I'm working with an experiencer right now who in trying to communicate with his father had his father say back to him, you know, where are you? Who are you with? And him saying, I'm with those who aren't from our world. Something to that effect. I, I don't want to put words in his mouth. This was through, like, a medium? Yeah. But that could mean, mm. not from our world, could mean just... Because like, the, the, the spirit people, quote, spirit people who speak through Stuart Alexander often talk about our world. Right. In our world, it's like it's a different world. Right. So I guess that could be interpreted a lot It is. Ways. Again, it comes down to language. It doesn't necessarily yeah. mean E.T. However... Do you think, though, however, that there is a connection between... Your this book, your first book, um, the ET question. The what I, I mean, always say is that if you pull back far enough, right? If yeah. your perspective gets big enough, this all has to be connected in some way, mm-hmm. right? It's got to be part of the same story. 
if yeah. you look at it from a... And I would check out Diana's book with respect to that question, too, but I think there is a connection, but I don't quite understand what it is yet. Right. I, I, yeah, that's a really <laughs> good way to put it. I mean, Diana says, you know, the question of UFOs and those looking at this is, it is a new religion for a new age. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> I think I struggled with that for a while when she said that, but the more I look at it, the more... I, I I can see it, like you said, Mike. The more you you zoom out, mm. you're like, oh my god, it is. And I think the important thing to realize about Diana's work, and I remember bringing this up in the in our interview with her, but she didn't really address it. But I think it's really important. She's not saying that UFOs are not physically real, right? Just because she puts them in a certain context of real, of a new kind of religion and kind of connects them to previous experiences within the context of Catholicism and everything like that, it does. She's a, it doesn't mean she's denying their physical reality. And I think, I remember on Facebook when her book first came out, people were posting on my page, oh, she just says it's religion. You know, she doesn't think they're real. And people don't, you have to realize that it's both. It's both at the same time. And she's completely aware of the reality of of the objects Mm -hmm. on a physical level. She also seems to be warning against uh, it becoming a religion in the sense that it becomes dogmatic in some way and, you know i mean I, I think she's saying like jeffrey kripal says this a lot you know make the cut is how jeffrey <laughs> kripal puts it you know there's a difference between the thing and what we interpret the thing to be yeah um and that's where the narratives and the mythology start it's interpretation yeah right and i think you have to allow all of it to be real at the same time and that's what you have to be able to do is hold even conflicting things hold them in your mind at the same time mm-hmm you have to be able to do that because you're going to run up against that kind of stuff all the time. Yeah. When this universe. It's, it's certainly the focus of my, my <clears throat> life right now, though, is, is, is trying to figure out what, what the intersection of this stuff is. You know, like we, we talk to these, you know, we, we, these, again, quote unquote, <laughs> spirit people. Uh, through Stuart, and you know, I, I want. Do they have, uh, you know, non-human intelligence on their life, butting into their existences somehow? Do they know about the ones on this side, quote unquote side? You know, how does this? How does this all relate? Mm-hmm. Um, you, it, it's frustrating because you start to narrow in on something, and you think you got the answer, mm. and then this guy throws at me. Oh, also, my my dead father said he's with aliens. <laughs> right. Like, what the hell do I do with that? <laughs> right. yeah. Like, I'm back to square one again. But I think you're right, Leslie. I think believing it all, in in a sense, or holding it all, or holding you, it all with the same. Just keep probing the questions, and you might never get the answers. But the journey of trying to find them is pretty rewarding and exciting. I mean, that's what has put <laughs> the three of us in this room together sure today. Is. Yeah. yeah so, I, mean, I mean, that's just, it's just, a, it's just all amazing and it changes your whole perception of what reality is. Yeah. It's yeah. much more than what we think. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, and you just have to be able to hold it all. I, I just, for me, that's really important. Me too. Because there aren't, if there aren't answers to things then you have to be able to behold this thing over here and this thing over here, because you're never really going to have the answer. Mm-hmm. And then, Things just kind of reveal themselves to you over time. Yeah. yeah. Jeffrey Kripal also writes, you know, that you have to uh, keep a chuckle about you. You know, you, like, you have to keep keep a sense of humor because this is real crazy stuff we're getting into here. <laughs> and it's baffling, utterly baffling. And, um, you know, you got, you, got to, you got to keep it light. Keep light, yeah. <laughs> keep it light. Speaking of that, another book I'd really recommend is Jeffrey Kripal's book called The Flip. 
Mm-hmm. Okay. It's really accessible, and it's it's just really wonderful just about these kind of shifts of consciousness that take place when you have these experiences and how common they are. Who who are some of the other leading people in this world that you guys have found yourself in? I mean, yeah, Kripal, I've definitely... Kripal, definitely. Dr. Okay. Jim Tucker from you know, University of Virginia has written two books. The most, his most recent book about children's past life memories is really interesting. Mm-hmm. I'd recommend that. Um, gosh, I have a whole... Uh, Dean Radin, is that name? Oh, yeah, Dean yeah. Radin. Well, yeah, Dean yeah. Radin's great, but he's dealing with psychic phenomena. So we're, we, you know, one thing that's, what my book is really focused on and what we're really talking about here is the question of survival's past death specifically. Yes. Yeah. But there's all these other interesting elements of consciousness that don't really re- directly relate to that question necessarily, but they show that human capacities are much greater than we believe. Mm-hmm. And that's where Dean comes in because he studies Psi, he studies the ability, like a, a t- human telepathy and things like that. Okay. So human abilities that transcend what we conceive to be acceptable in the scientific world. But they don't necessarily have to do with surviving death. Okay. So There's uh, Dr. Parnia, um, right, who's doing... Oh, Sam Parnia. Sam Parnia, who's near-death ex- studying Gale. near-death experiences mm-hmm. and, and is working on, a, I think, a, a Pim another... Pim von Lommel's the other Pim great. von Lommel, of course. Pim von Lommel wrote a chapter in my book. He's one of the leading... Um, People on near-death experiences, he's incredible. And Peter yeah. Fennec is another great one. I get it. He's got these end-of-life experiences. Yeah. Effie, Effie. Well, I've got about 10 chapters in my book written by some of these people. So mm-hmm. I invited about 10 people to write their own chapters, sort of like I did with UFOs. And oh, not that's as many. fantastic. Yeah. And so you get to hear directly from a lot of these great people yeah. who have also written books, who have studied this stuff. That's, again, I keep coming back, NDEs and alien abductions. There seem to be so many the, Yeah, those two seem to be very closely linked. Yeah. All the, the after-death phenomena, it seems like NDEs are the ones that link, mm. maybe, obviously, most to aliens, because that's where people say they see them. Yeah. That's when they have near-death experiences. Which, this was something I had no idea about until recently, that there was this connection between people, uh, experiencers, seeing, you know, these non-human intelligences, whatever they are, and also their deceased loved ones. I had no idea, and I just yeah. read uh, Whitley's Whitley Strieber's book, book is another one, uh, a, a, new a, new world. World, a New World. And that's I, that, I, I devoured that book. Yeah, I highly recommend it. Um, and he gets into this question a lot, what is the relationship? Because when he wrote Communion... He and his wife, Anne, started getting hundreds of thousands of letters from experiencers, as I'm sure your listeners know. And what Anne um, started, she started to keep a list of the commonalities, right? Like things that would come up time and again, she would start to, to make a list and make a hash mark, right, for how many times this came up. And one of the things that was coming up over and over and over again was people seeing their deceased loved ones. And I had never heard about that. I knew nothing about that. <laughs> and uh, that's really where Whitley's, I would say, his focus seems to be right now based on his his most recent book. Which is because he lost Anne, and she's had a lot of communications from Anne's right. wife. So that sort of brings him, all, him closer together to this aspect of it. Yeah. Right. It wasn't something he talked a lot about before. No. no I, I, think, I think it's a way to cope, too. If we're going to get to the very human, visceral level of all this... No matter how far out we want to go in theory, uh, I think a lot of it comes back on ourselves of wanting to keep that loved one or person somehow in our life. Yeah. And whether that just comes with memory or um, some sort of in- interaction or communication, uh, I think it, it really does boil down to we are very 
caring, loving creatures. I think that's why we have the hearts and minds that we do. Uh, you know, not all of us all the time, but <laughs> for the most part, I think we all just want, we don't want to lose Absolutely. something. Yeah. We well, don't want to lose That's what's so people. wonderful about all this, and it's about wonderful about mediumship, is that it connects you with that reality of connecting to your loved one, and you can take away with it whatever you want. But the way I look at it is why I, I have my doubt. You know, the doubt is always a lingering thing. But then why not allow myself to accept the experience as it as it ex- felt to me in the moment? And therefore, as you say, it, it allows you to feel that connection to your loved ones. When you're suffering the grief, the kind of grief that Mike suffered when he lost his dad, it was just almost he could barely survive. So this process is very healing for people, regardless of its objective reality or non-reality. If you go through this process and you can find these ways of connecting with your loved one after they've, they've died, it just changes everything because you, you always feel connected to them. And it can help a lot with grieving. So it's yeah. wonderful in that way. Yeah, for me, again, really? I'm not a therapist, so but not recommending any uh, course of, of action. But for me personally, I, as Leslie said, I was really devastated. My dad's passing was a total shock, and and that was I was I was in a rough place, and um, having a full blown existential crisis. You know, thinking if someone as amazing as my dad could suddenly, as it, it was like he had never been here before, then what was the point of anything? Yeah, right. And uh, when I had this first experience, it instantly pulled me out of that hole. Like for me, it was instantaneous. And, um, you know, so I, I recommend, uh, uh, to grieving people all the time. Now people contact me a lot asking about mediumship and whether or not it's something to try. And, um, I can just say that for me personally, it really made a difference in my life and I've seen it help other people. And, um, you know, like, like Leslie said, so much of this is experiential, you know, you can read about it as much as, as you'd like, but until you experience it for yourself, uh, you, you can't really know what that moment is like, mm-hmm. uh, where the veil seems to thin for a moment, mm-hmm. whatever that veil is. Yeah. Yeah. Get to peek behind mm-hmm. every now and again. I think that hope, having hope that there is something yeah. other That's than right. this. It's just a wonderful thing to have in your life. Yeah. yeah. And why not? And, you know, if you can, if there's not just your own experience, but there's also actual evidence and studies that, that also support that. Yeah. You come away with, you know, that's why I was, it was so exciting to do this research because you're left with that experience of the great possibility. And yes, Mm -hmm. it gives you hope. It gives you a sense that death isn't the end and that there's something much bigger going on than just our immediate physical day to day lives. Yeah. And yeah, every, I think it's, you know, life would be. Imagine living without that. I know, right? Life is so much better if you're not constantly worried about it ending. <laughs> Good point. Good point. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. Well, you know, sort of to wrap this up, guys, um, hope looking towards the future. Um, I know you can't give away too much, but the, this has brought you together in ways I'm sure you never imagined. I'm sure you've had very profound experiences with one another and separately, uh, which can bring people closer than you can possibly imagine. Um, what are you working on? Is there anything you can give our audience about what comes next for the two of you? Well, one thing we're working on is a, um, I mean, I wouldn't say we're working on it, but there is a documentary series being produced um, based on my book. And um, so I'm a, a producer for that. I mean, I'm very involved with the whole production and there's six, uh, six episodes and Mike is part of that. So 
Mike is, is one of the characters in that who describes his journey with discovering his connection to his dad through mediumship <laughs> and other experiences he had, signs from his dad and all kinds of stuff. So um, that's something that's been really fun to share. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm more enmeshed in it than Mike is because <laughs> I'm also a producer on it, but I think it's going to be really interesting and it, it does, it goes off in a lot of different areas. I mean, way more than what's in my book. It doesn't cover everything in my book and it covers a whole lot of new stuff. And it's very much focused on, uh, a lot of it is about people's personal journeys. It's not, it's not really heavily, heavy scientifically, you know, heavy, heavy duty science, but it brings the experts in. But there's a lot of human beings in this series having these amazing experiences. Yeah. And it's going to be aired, I can't say yet where, but it's going to have a major uh, major exposure probably next fall. Wow. So it's in production right now. So that's been something that Mike and I have shared, and we also have a sitting group that we sit together, uh, a, a, a kind of a mediumship group we do every Monday together. With some other people too, so we're yeah we're sharing a lot of this journey right now, and it's really meaningful. It's so much more fun to have someone to share it with. <laughs> yeah, it can be kind of lonely. Oh my god, it's pretty weird. How many people can I call up and say, hey, can can we talk about ectoplasm? <laughs> <laughs> you know, we can get off the ectoplasm <laughs> thing. There, there aren't yeah. that many for the next two hours. Yeah. Yeah. How yeah. many you can you analyze when you think you might have gotten a sign from the other side? Could right. this really be that, or is it something else? Right. You yeah. know. Well, uh, yeah. We, then we do a lot of that. You build off of one another. I <laughs> yeah. mean, it's really really fun. It's a beautiful thing. It's the same in the UFO field. The minute I have some sort of revelation or anything, you know, first person I call up is my mentor. And yeah. then we talk for four or five hours and oh, wow. the rest is history. But, um, I think, I think you're right, Leslie. I think, um, there's a lot of reward for each individual to be gained when looking at things like this. And the journey always seems to be far more rewarding than any of the destinations. Mm-hmm. I Look, think it's true. It's all about the journey. It's you're never going to get the final answers. Right. I mean, you can maybe get answers for individual moments yeah. right in that journey, but the bigger picture, yep. I think it's always going to be a mystery. Yeah. And I think, you know, once we all leave this mortal coil, we'll maybe find the answer. Well, we will. We either have nothing or we'll find an answer. Yep. <laughs> right. yep. And then who are we going to tell? But that's what we're trying to figure out. So I can't thank you guys enough for that's what I say. On. That's what I say to skeptics all the time. I'm like, yeah. listen, if I'm right, I'm going to be like, I told you so when we get there. If you're right, nobody's going to know. That's so. a good point. I had two friends who said, look, whichever one of us passes away first let's make a deal i'm gonna come back to haunt you right <laughs> and then that's gonna happen and sure enough a good friend of mine paul kimball um lost a friend of his very early mm. in life uh very abruptly and um since then didn't know how to deal with it or the grief or the loss and um sure enough his friend came back that's and, so great. Oh, wow. and told him you know Is i'm that- here I'm haunting you. Oh, cool. <laughs> so, I mean, it doesn't get much better than that. And that I'm sure that's what you want. It's like we were talking about earlier, right? Yeah. It probably helped him with the whole process of being, it's beautiful. having yeah. lost his friend. Yeah. It, it can be scary. It can be exciting. But at the end of the day, it's it's beautiful. And I can't think of another way to look at it. I feared death for so long. But mm. after having this conversation, uh, it's it's opened, I think, my mind and my heart to what could come next. I'm so right. glad. And that's... Great extremely uh it gives me hope I'm really so glad yeah that's great thank you guys thank thanks you. for having us our pleasure absolutely 
That's it for this week's episode. Be sure to keep a lookout for Leslie and Mike's documentary series, Surviving Death in the Very Near Future. For updates, follow Leslie on Twitter, at Leslie Kane. Be sure to follow us on Twitter, at Somewhere Skies. If you enjoyed today's show, please show your support by subscribing, rating, and reviewing on Apple Podcasts, your Android apps, or wherever you get the show. It helps us gain visibility and find new listeners. Thank you in advance. If you have a story you'd like to share on the show, you can contact me personally through the official website, somewhereintheskies.com. Thank you as always to the E1 Podcast Network, Rogue Planet TV, and especially to you for listening. I'll see you here next week. And remember, keep your feet on the ground, but never stop searching somewhere in the skies. is produced by Third Kind Productions in association with the Entertainment One Podcast Network. To learn more, visit entertainmentonepodcast.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com.